You're listening to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast with FOIA leaders, Bill Harmon and Heather Lavalley, tackling all things from 401ks to HSAs and everything in between. We're talking to the best and brightest in the industry to bring you the latest in health, wealth, and investment trends in the workplace. Come along with us on our journey to help all Americans become well-planned, well-invested, and well-protected. Welcome back to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast. I'm here today with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Heather Lavalley. And Heather, great to see you in 2022. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Bill. You know, it's so great to be back with everyone today. You know, as you know, one of our more popular topics on the show has been talking about retirement legislation. And we're into a new year and, of course, talks of what's hopefully moving ahead in 2022 are top of mind. So we thought we'd bring an expert to share a little bit more about the history of the retirement legislation how we got to where we are today. And so to do that, we're joined today by Jim Klein, president of the American Benefit Council, a trade association based in Washington, DC, representing primarily Fortune 500 companies that either sponsor or administer health and retirement benefits, covering more than 100 million Americans. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, fantastic. So, Jim, um, I, you know, some of our listeners might recognize you as you're frequently quoted in both the national and benefits media on pension and healthcare topics. But you've also appeared on major television networks discussing a wide range of employee benefit policy matters. So, why don't you start today by telling our listeners a little bit more about the American Benefits Council and your role? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, so, American Benefits Council is based in Washington, D.C., we've been here since 1967. Our members include primarily large employer plan sponsors of benefit plans, but then the full range of uh, those companies that support employer plan sponsors and the work that they do. And there really are two components to the work that we do. First is public policy. We're here in the nation's capital, so we interact a great deal with Congress on legislative matters, with the regulatory agencies on regulatory matters, and actually file friend of the court briefs in important judicial cases that relate to benefits. Uh, And then the other component of what we do is simply to help our members with operational issues and uh, compliance matters. We're not a law firm, we're not a consulting firm, but very often we know the answer can work with outside experts or the uh, agency officials themselves. In terms of my role, uh, I'm the president, which means uh, I just sit back and relax and uh, bask in the glow of my very capable colleagues. You certainly do uh, have capable colleagues. It's great to work with you. And you talk about the research, and I, I saw recently some of the American Benefits Council's research in the Journal of Total Rewards, which found that the number of voters who most trust employers is more than double the number that most trust the federal government. So first, could you talk a little bit more about this research and what your team found? And then second, how do you think employers can leverage this information in terms of their own benefit strategies? Sure, sure. I'll be happy to. So uh, Public Opinion Strategies is a national polling research firm. Uh, They've done a lot of work for Wall Street Journal and NBC and political candidates and so forth. And every election year, uh, going back to the early 1990s, they have done an election night poll asking a variety of different questions. So the last two election cycles, 2018 and 2020, we actually gave them, we commissioned them to ask a number of different employee benefits related questions. And the one I think that you're, you're referring to is the question that they posed saying, which of the following uh, sources do you trust the most to help you achieve a secure retirement? And the four choices were uh, your employer, the individual marketplace, federal government, or state government. A couple of interesting things to sort of unpack there. 
First of all, from 2018 to 2020, the trust in employers actually went up. In 2018, it was 47% for employers, 33% for individual marketplace, uh, 13 and 5% respectively for federal and state government. Two years later, uh, it was up to 52% for employers, 24% individual marketplace, again, 13%, and then four for federal and state. So that's some very nice news, I think, there. What I think is even more interesting, though, are sort of some of the so-called cross tabs where they kind of compare some of the findings or, or some of the responses, I guess I should say, from groups based upon age, based upon political affiliation, employment status, racial differences, et cetera. Uh, and I'd be happy to share those with you if you'd like me to, to do that. So, Jim, would love to hear a little bit more around how that research is broken down. Can you share a little more about that? I'm, I'm quite intrigued. Interestingly, um, and I think on a very positive note, there don't seem to be any real differences in terms of people's trust level. And again, these were voters who were being interviewed based upon age. So across the age spectrum of, of eligible voters, it was about the same. In terms of employed versus unemployed, in 2018, 53% of employed trusted employers as compared to 40% for unemployed. Interestingly, two years later, it was the same for the employed, but it went up considerably for people who are unemployed, up by 11%. And it's always difficult to sort of draw too many conclusions from these things, particularly when you're just comparing two election cycles. It'd be interesting to follow the trends on some of this. But I suspect that it might have something to do with the pandemic and the fact that people may have lost their jobs or may have participated in the great resignation or whatever, but still had confidence in the, the strength of their retirement plan to be there to provide them with a secure retirement. Among some of the other interesting changes is that 2018, Democrats trusted employers more than Republicans did. And that flipped pretty much the same way by about a 5% differential just two years later. In 2018, by a significant margin, non-whites trusted employers more than whites by a 12% differential. Two years later, it was essentially equal. And you know whether that is a reflection of the change of the political affiliation or vice versa, is, is sort of hard to determine. That too may be one of the outgrowths of some of the greater sensitivity around uh, social justice issues and confidence in different type of institutions. So it's just a lot to unpack there. I think the overarching theme of this is employer sponsors are highly trusted. And it, at least from one, one year to the next per this poll, uh, it grew meaningfully. Uh, but uh, digging down deep, maybe there's something to be said for uh, how one then approaches it, which I think actually relates to the second part of your question in terms of, okay, so then how do employers leverage all of this? On that point, um, I, I guess, first of all, let me just say it's, a, it's an excellent question. And I have to confess to you that when we asked public opinion strategies to do this polling, we didn't really even think of it in terms of how employers might use the results. We were thinking of it from the standpoint of our public policy advocacy work that we wanted to see whether or not there was evidence there to support the notion that the public, in fact, does generally trust their employer, and therefore policymakers should keep that in mind in terms of pursuing the kinds of legislation and regulations that help bolster the employer-sponsored system. But having said that, I, I really like your question, 
and I, I think there are maybe two parts of it that I, I that I can draw from that. The first one is that as the changes in responses just from 2018 to 2020 tell us, trust is not a static thing. It has to continually be earned, whether it's employers or the government or any of us in our personal interactions. And so employers have to remain committed to those plans to maintain that trust. And I think maybe the pandemic demonstrated some of that because even though initially and very immediately and very substantially, employers had to make some difficult decisions given the economic impact of the pandemic, for example, suspending their 401k match or something like that. Once things eased up, most of those employers restored it. And I think that's the kind of thing that instills trust in people, which relates to the second point, which is communication. I think that all of us are much better able to accept bad news when, when we know that we're getting it straight and that it's explained to us why something is being done. So I think those are maybe a couple of ways, maintaining commitment to the system and open and honest and frequent communication are ways that employers can leverage that trust. Really uh, insightful and interesting you know, findings from the research that you just shared. I want to bring it back to the topic of legislation. And you kind of touched on that, that originally some of this research was thinking about how this might impact policy and supporting employer-sponsored plans. But if we, if we do bring it back to legislation, I'd like to ask, and maybe your opinion or that of the broader Benefits Council, what's different about this recent legislation compared to, say, looking back maybe five years ago or even over the past few years. You know, it is quite clear that retirement continues to remain a bipartisan topic. So where have you seen the needle move the most? And what are the retirement policy issues that you think are primed to gain the most federal action in the coming months? Uh, another excellent question. By the way, uh, as you were asking it, I, was, I, I had another thought on your first question, if I could just go back to that for one second. Uh, and that is uh, sort of, so how do you leverage that trust? Well, one way I think would be to recognize, for employers to recognize that they have that trust by and large and, and use that to, to maximize their efforts, to encourage people to participate to the extent that they're financially capable of doing so, not to be shy about investment, education, and advice, you know, go forward with auto enrollment, all of those kinds of things, things that I think employers are by and large doing, but maybe now have a little bit more evidence to support that they can do so with confidence. On the second question here that you asked me, first of all, I guess I would say that this is a very bipartisan area, as, as you noted, as partisan as so many other areas of public policy are, health policy, environmental policy, you name it, there is a lot of bipartisan agreement around retirement policy matters. So some of the bipartisan legislation that's pending now, in many respects, is very similar to or simply builds upon what has been done in the past. But one difference is that there is a greater focus and awareness around equity issues. So for example, this time around, I think there's a lot more interest in addressing issues around spousal consent, recognizing disparities between men and, and women in terms of retirement security, extending, for example, some of the spousal consent rules that apply to traditional defined benefit pension plans to defined contribution plans. I think it's also interesting that in Congress, there are more players who are interested in this issue. In prior rounds of bipartisan legislation, it was primarily the members of Congress who served on the tax writing committees. This go around, we see a lot more interest in addition from those who serve on the labor committees. So sort of that component, if you will, 
of retirement policy, that it's an amalgam of tax policy and employment and labor policy. Other specific things, emergency savings, those needs, obviously something else, therefore, that that came forward uh, uh, more acutely from the pandemic to recognize that people have an immediate need sometimes for uh, a sum of money to address an immediate challenge that they're facing. Uh, And the student loan issue, that was an issue, obviously, that's been around for a while, that got caught up to some degree in in the 2020 elections. But this whole idea of allowing employers to make so-called matching contributions to their employees' uh, 401k plans, if the employee demonstrates that they're not actually contributing to the 401k plan, but that they are spending that money to bring down their student loan debt. So those are some of the things I think that are different this go-around from two years ago, five years ago. You mentioned there's a lot going on in, in the retirement world. There certainly is. But, but what about health policy? You mentioned earlier that the Benefits Council has made it very clear that employers are trusted. And so I guess tell us a little bit more about what would be on the horizon or how Washington would react to that sentiment um, in terms of health policy. And it, does it complement anything specific to what you're seeing on the retirement front? Well, first of all, um, I would I would mention to you that we did ask that same question about trust in 2018 and in 2020. And uh, the good news is that employers still came out by far ahead of the other sources for a secure. Actually, the question was for a uh, as a source of quality healthcare coverage. It did dip a little bit from 2018 to 2020, to which I, I attribute that to two factors. Number one. Again, the pandemic, kind of a reoccurring theme here, uh, and some people either having lost coverage, though knock on wood, it wasn't as many as, uh, as had been feared, but certainly there was a great concern about the potential for losing healthcare coverage or seeing friends or neighbors or family members who had. The second reason, I think, is that we changed the question slightly in 2020, and we added the word as a source of affordable quality health coverage. So I think a lot of people probably feel like, yeah, I've got really good quality coverage, but it's maybe not so affordable. But overall, again, positive message here. Uh, I think that there really is an interesting intersection between health policy and retirement policy. On one level, I think it's it's a sort of a recognition that we all have that I, I think maybe the public policymakers don't have sufficiently, and therefore it's our job to help them understand it. And that is the notion that one's sense of being secure in retirement is in large part connected to whether or not they feel secure in having their healthcare needs taken care of. And that as healthcare costs increase, that chews up an ever larger share of their available discretionary uh, income in retirement. Therefore, any measures that can be taken to address to mitigate the increases in healthcare costs also has a beneficial impact on people's sense of feeling secure in retirement. The other area where I think the two intersect relates to behavioral health, mental health care. Lots and lots of studies, as we know, have shown, and this isn't such a profound finding, that one element in people's having a sense of of well-being relates to their finances, or that poor finances certainly contributes to emotional stress. No great surprise there. As partisan as the healthcare debate is and has been for many years in this country and in Congress, one area where I do see a bright light is bipartisan interest in Congress to address the issue of mental health. Now, it remains to be seen whether when 
push comes to shove, they can agree on some specific ideas. But there is a genuine bipartisan interest there. And I think that one of the points that we have made in response to the requests from Congress to, okay, what can we do around mental health, making sure that you're pursuing policies that help people accumulate sufficient retirement savings, et cetera, will have a beneficial impact on their mental health status. So it's just a very interesting way in which sort of the two worlds in which we're involved in, uh, in which perhaps many of the listeners of this podcast are involved in, really do relate to one another. Thank you, Jim. I, I like the, that interconnectedness between physical health, mental health, and, and financial well-being overall. You know, this has just been such a fantastic conversation. We so appreciate your time. I'm going to end with one final question um, for our listeners, and that is this. You talked about where you think legislation is heading in the next several months. And so now that we are in the new year, can you tell us uh, what the priorities are for the American Benefit Council in the immediate future as a result? Well, I guess there's a macro answer and a micro answer. The macro answer is that employers, particularly large multi-state employers like the bulk of our members, care very, very much about preserving the nearly 50-year standard of so-called ERISA federal preemption. That is to say, the ability of employers to not only administer their plans consistently when they're operating nationwide, but also to be able to provide the same benefits to their workers wherever they happen to live or work. And this issue or this standard of, of preemption is being eroded on the retirement side as states get more involved, certainly on the healthcare side, and very, very much so, by the way, as it relates to paid leave laws. But the matter that sort of brings it back to the retirement area is that to the extent that ERISA itself is eroded, maybe in the paid leave context or in the healthcare context, that will have a bearing on the standards that apply for retirement plans as well. The second area relates to sort of the revenue loss, and that is to say that the tax favor treatment of employer-sponsored health and retirement plans are deemed to be, are calculated to be the largest sources of foregone tax revenue to the federal government. Therefore, the area that Congress often looks at when it is hungry to find revenue to pay for other interests. And I would just say that some of the other research that we've done, talk about it on another occasion, finds that for every dollar of foregone tax revenue related to the tax favor treatment of employer-sponsored health care, employers are spending $5.34 on health care services for their employees and, and their family members. On the retirement side, it's even more significant. $1 of foregone revenue translates into $7.18 of payments that are made out of retirement plans. In other words, this is a huge bargain for the federal government and for all of us as, as taxpayers. So those are the macro issues. On the micro issues, it's such things as legislation to help uh, match up missing participants with their plan sponsors uh, so that they can be paid the benefits that they're due. The student loan issue that I mentioned to you, interest around uh, de-risking strategies from pension plans, increasing the beginning age for being required to take a distribution from your defined contribution plan as, as the policymakers recognize greater longevities. Those are the ones I would say sort of on the micro level, if you will, are sort of the first up to be considered. That's all the good news. The bad news is that as bipartisan as all of this is, much legislation these days is being dealt with as part of this sort of these these massive budget reconciliation measures, which are measures that are pursued on a purely partisan basis by both parties. And, And that often doesn't leave enough opportunity to add in some of the policy priorities that the minority party has in mind. 
So until we can sort of break loose of this budget reconciliation process that's been used now for a decade or more, it's going to be harder to achieve some of the bipartisan initiatives around which there really is agreement. So it's something for us to strive for in an aspirational way. Well, Jim, you've uh, you've certainly given our listeners a lot of things to think about today. I want to thank you again for your insight and for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure participating. Yeah, Jim, I want to echo Heather's thanks, and I really appreciate your time. Great information. It's been incredibly insightful. And once again, we're happy to be back here and ready for what's ahead in 2022. So appreciate all you tuning in. Thanks for joining us today and stay well. This information is provided by Voyeur for your education only. Neither Voyeur nor its representatives offer tax or legal advice. Any opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect those of the Voyeur family of companies or its representatives and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Please consult your tax or legal advisor before making a tax-related investment or insurance decision. Products and services offered through the Voya family of companies.